is Yosemite Land, the Capital Public Radio podcast, where we look at how Yosemite National Park is changing and explore its future. I'm your host, Ezra David Romero. This is our final episode. The podcast has been a great way to tell you about a place that I have a lot of history with. But the moments I'm going to remember the most are learning about the Native American history from the Native American elders in the park, and then hiking up the four-mile trail and seeing that double rainbow and then taking a bunch of selfies. You know, most people don't get to experience Yosemite, and there are topics that we didn't get into the podcast, like more on climate change and working conditions for park employees. We've had some strong reactions to the information we presented, and our goal with this episode is to answer your questions and to clear up some issues. Welcome to Yosemite Land. you to meet someone that's super special and has been a huge part of Yosemite land. Sally Schilling is our producer. Hey, Sally. Hey, Ezra. It's been really awesome to work on this project with you. So Sally does all kinds of things for this podcast. She helps out with story development. She lays out the audio for the podcast, and she helps me not sound like a machine when we do recordings. (laughs) And then she's made this podcast work, and thank you so much, Sally. You've been fielding questions throughout this podcast about issues and ideas, what are people saying? So we've heard from people on everything from safety to overcrowding to being stuck in traffic. On Twitter, we heard from a woman named Jeanette Warner about our episode on rock climbing. In her tweet, she said, Great episode, though mention of recent rock climbing deaths would have given additional perspective. To get that perspective, we reached out to Ken Yeager with the Yosemite Climbing Association. He's the guy that has devoted his life to climbing in Yosemite, and he was in our episode on the rock when he told me about the first time he touched El Capitan. One thing we didn't include in that episode is when he made me touch El Capitan for the first time. I didn't feel sparks like he did when he touched it, but I definitely felt tiny next to this huge monolith and would have been freaked out if I had to climb that beast of a mountain. You know, Ken's life goal is to see a rock climbing museum go up in Yosemite so people can have a better understanding of the sport, that it's not all danger and doom and gloom. You know, he admits rock climbing is dangerous, though, and sometimes really dangerous. And he says on average, one person dies in Yosemite every year from a rock climbing accident. And, you know, this summer, two people fell to their deaths from El Capitan. Here's what he has to say about that. I think they just kind of let their guard down because they were on probably the easiest section of the climb. There's no way to 100% guarantee exactly what happened, but that's kind of what my feeling is what happened. I think one person fell, and then suddenly it's like, oh, shoot, we don't have any gear in, and then the one person pulled the other person off. I don't think that investigation is completed. Maybe we'll never know exactly what happened, but it's pretty obvious that they were very comfortable up there because they did not have any gear in. It's just a tragedy. What does he mean when he says they didn't have any gear in? It means they weren't anchored into the rock. Climbers use things called hexes and cams and nuts or carabiners. And some of those things are pieces of metal they actually put into the rock. Sometimes they drill them in. That's a practice that's not used as much anymore. But the other ones expand and they kind of hold them up. 
And so that's what he's talking about there. And that prevents them from falling. So they didn't have any kind of anchor in at that time. Exactly. Ken told me that rock climbing accidents usually happen between two types of people. It seems to be people on either end of the spectrum. You're either just learning and you do something foolish, maybe you just didn't know any better, or they're trying to emulate the high-end climbers or the people that are at the top of the game. So it, it seems like it's the people really pushing the limits. And it's the people just, you know, once you survive that first year, you're probably going to be okay. But there are safe ways to go about it. The best way as a, is to learn climbing from an experienced climber as a mentor. And that's how we used to teach each other for years and years. And now there's climbing schools and things like that. Ken talks a lot about how now climbers are basically celebrities. And you highlighted that in your rock climbing episode, Ezra. People like Alex Honnold and Tommy Caldwell, who you talked to. Yeah, Alex is that climber that scaled El Capitan without any ropes or anything attached to the rock. I would be so scared to even do that, like <laughs> to be 3,000 feet up in the air and to fall or with nothing, just chalk on your hands. And both of these guys, Alex and Tommy, have documentaries about climbing in Yosemite. For years and years, we were just a bunch of misfits that were called bums and dirtbags. And suddenly... Some of us, anyway, people like Alex and Tommy are celebrities, so it's an exciting time for our sport right now. It's kind of nice to see a bunch of these people get recognition for the athletes that they are. What other kinds of responses have we got when it comes to rock climbing, Sally? A couple people in the newsroom were wondering whether people should have to get permits to rock climb in Yosemite. What did you find out about that? Yeah, I found out that the park doesn't really regulate climbing. They do have climbing rangers, though, but Ken likes that climbers aren't restricted. There is no permit required for climbing. We're welcome to go out and endanger ourselves at whatever level we want to. I think it's something that the Park Service has stayed out of because once you start regulating things, then it's kind of acquiring responsibility for that activity. And climbers are pretty good about policing themselves. So far, that has worked here. It's hard to say what's going to happen in the future as climbing gets more and more popular and the park gets more and more populated. Besides climbing, what else did we hear from our listeners about? So the thing we heard the most about from listeners was traffic, definitely. People were super passionate with their solutions about congestion and parking. And we talked a lot about that in episode two called Take Me Away, which, by the way, if you didn't uh, know where that came from, it was a line in a song that was playing in Ezra's Prius when he was driving up to Yosemite. Yeah, that was Natasha Bedingfield's song, Pocket Full of Sunshine. <laughs> I honestly honestly didn't remember that actually playing in the car. And when I listened back, I was like, what the heck was I listening to? So I'm sorry you were subject to that 2008 classic. And if you liked it, good. Yeah. And that scene, you're in line. And actually, we had a couple people write in about that exact scene. They're saying, hey, why were you using your buddy's park pass to get into Yosemite? Yeah, I wanted to clear that up. You know, it's actually OK to use your friend's pass if your name is on it. Each annual pass has two lines on it, and my friend Sergio's name was on one, and then my name is on the second one. So, And there's no stipulation on being married or a family member, so you can share it with a friend as long as their signature is on one of those two lines. So that's what I did. I signed the annual pass, and I should have been a little more clear about that. And also, um, in response to this traffic episode, you know, where we talked a lot about how traffic is threatening wildlife with people driving too fast and hitting and killing bears, we got a voice memo from Jesus Melcher, who's a seasonal worker in the park. He had a creative idea about how to stop these bear hits in addition to what the park's already doing. So here's Jesus. It's a wildlife corridor 
where you would build a bridge that goes over the road and then that bridge on top of it has actual vegetation it's an eco bridge for wildlife for them to cross and from what i've studied is that you know animals are pretty intelligent if they know that there's an area that they can cross that mitigates them being hit by a car they will go and start using that route and I feel like has the possibility of saving a lot of bears' lives. I've heard of these wildlife crossings before, but over freeways and really busy roads in cities. I know there's efforts to build these corridors over freeways in Southern California to help boost mountain lion populations. So what's different here is that Yosemite is this remote area deep in the Sierra Nevada, and having to develop a bridge for wildlife seems sort of out of place. Francesco Orsi, who was in our traffic episode, likes this idea. He edited a book called Sustainable Transportation in Natural and Protected Areas. Let's hear from him. I don't see major concerns or something because they can be built without major damages to the surrounding nature. Then, of course, the unintended consequence might be that after building this, administrators and managers can be more willing to accept additional cars because you say, okay, now the animals are free to go and so we can have X percent more cars in because there's no risk or at least reduced risks of collisions. We also heard from one listener suggesting that highways into the park could be toll roads and then you could use that toll money to subsidize the bus systems like YARTS. Yeah, if you don't remember what YARTS is, it's a Yosemite area regional transit system. It's a system of buses that you can take from area towns into the park for a nominal fee. Yeah, and another listener named Allison pointed out that there's a lot of ways to get from further away and connect with yards so you can take public transportation all the way, perhaps, from where you live. Like, for example, where we are in Sacramento, you can take Amtrak to a neighboring town near Yosemite and then shuttle in. People have also suggested that park entrance fees could be raised or parking could be reserved online. And one person even suggested a lottery system for parking. Yeah, that reminds me of the lottery to go up half dome, which I still have yet to do and I'm kind of afraid of half dome, so I might not ever do it. You know, I asked Francesco about tolls and pricing, and he says raising fees can disproportionately affect those who live near places like Yosemite. The equity issue is particularly problematic if you think about people coming from, surprisingly enough, from nearby, because for these people, the actual increased fee might be a larger share of their own travel expenses. So if you're coming from 100 miles away, any extra dollars might be heavier than what it is for a guy coming from Europe who already pays 2000 for flying and, and traveling. We also got an email from a guy named Paul Davis who asks, what if buses into the park were free? Paul also suggested speed bumps throughout Yosemite to slow drivers down. Francesco liked that idea as well. And Derek Dolphy listened to the podcast, and in 2015, he wrote his master's thesis on traffic in Yosemite. And in his paper, he wrote that the solution needs to not only limit cars going into the valley, but also address this equity issue that we're talking about. And that means improving the shuttle system for people that are coming into the park without their cars so that they have an equal experience. He suggested limiting the number of cars coming in each day and then directing others to park in these neighborhoods towns outside the park and shuttling in. And he says this could be really good for these surrounding towns that really do depend on tourism. But Francesco Orsi says the use of buses could have negative effects on Yosemite itself. 
He learned about this while interviewing officials with Rocky Mountain National Park. The actual number of people reaching trailheads and, and sensitive areas increased significantly because the carrying capacity of several buses is higher than the carrying capacity of, of private vehicles when these private vehicles are on a traffic jam. What they found was that the traffic jam was actually a limiting factor. So basically, the number of people eventually reaching the trailheads was lower when they had cars. The possible issue with shuttle buses is that if you do not put a limit, even on the shuttle buses, you have thousands of people enter the area. And it, this might be problematic. This is a really hard issue as well because people like to drive and there's this culture of driving to and in national parks. And I'm totally guilty of this as well. Like I love packing my car full of my camping gear and going to the park and knowing that I have all of it right there. But Francesco says that mentality could be doing more harm than good. We cannot all drive under, I don't know, the half dome and then at the same time empty roads and nice air and, you know, we, we all have to give up a bit in order to have a better common good. Back in the 19th century, they were talking about what is the tragedy of the commons. So the idea that if we all try to maximize our own, you know, benefits, then of course we're going to have, we're going to end up with a collective tragedy. And this is something that might happen in the national park. But of course, with good management and the ability to pe of people to accept some sort of reduction in what we can do, we can all benefit greatly from these amazing places. And that's a huge reason why I wanted to do this podcast. We question whether practices in play today are actually beneficial for the future of Yosemite because this place is special to me and to millions of other visitors. And I think every episode highlights that. Absolutely. And it's just so sad. We're coming to the end here. Do you have any final thoughts, Ezra? I originally went into this podcast with the idea that we're going to explore how tourism is affecting Yosemite, but it became so much more than that. And this place is like a living organism. And what I've realized is that if one of those elements is out of place, the whole place can suffer. Think about bears and cars. And if we're speeding, bears can be killed. And so we got to slow down. And that's Sort of what I learned through this whole podcast. It's like, slow down, enjoy nature. And there's been these moments where it's been fun, but I felt done with Yosemite. Like, I'm only thinking about Yosemite all summer long. <laughs> and now I have the opportunity to not think about it and not write about Yosemite. As a reporter. <laughs> yeah, as a reporter. And now I get a chance to just go back and sit there and enjoy Yosemite. And that's what I encourage people to do. That's what I want to do. Okay, so in your very first episode, in like the introduction, you said, you know, this isn't like a tourist top 10 hiking spots kind of podcast. But now I just want to ask you, now that you get to go back and just be a visitor, like what are those top spots you want to go back to? First of all, I'd hike up the trail to Cathedral Lakes on the east side of the park. That's on the way to Tuolumne Meadows. It overlooks... There's this lookout there where it overlooks Tanaya Lake, and it's super beautiful. I would do a night hike up the base of Half Dome in Yosemite Valley. It's totally worth it, even if you don't have a permit to go up the dome. I'd go on a backpacking trip to what I hear is perhaps the best part of Yosemite not accessible by roads. It's called the Grand Canyon of the Tuolumne River. I hear it has some of the best waterfalls and views, but I've actually never been there. I also have this like love affair with giant sequoias, so I would spend time in a grove of giant sequoias, and because there's so many more than just the Mariposa Grove, which we highlighted in our first episode of the podcast. And then one thing I haven't done in a few years is raft down the Merced River in Yosemite Valley. 
I definitely do that again. Also, I think I'd try my hand at rock climbing. I'm not good by any means, but I'd definitely hire an instructor or try to find a mentor to help me out with it. And I'd go back to Hetch Hetchy and spend a long day hiking there. And I'd check in with a few people I met in this series. But mainly, I'd pack a lunch, go sit in the meadow, grab my headphones and a book, and just enjoy the beauty all around me. I want to thank everyone who has come along for the adventure with me in Yosemite, and I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. Thank you for listening to Yosemite Land. I want to say thank you to everyone who has believed in this podcast and made it possible. First, thank you to my editors. Nick Miller was the main editor. He listened meticulously to every word and pushed me to include my own voice and experiences in the podcast. That was great. Thank you, Linnea Edmire and Joe Barr, for allowing this project to take form from a five-line pitch to a couple hours of radio. A huge thank you to Sally Schilling, our podcast producer. She's been the glue that's held this whole thing together. Plus, a huge thank you to the marketing and digital teams that came up with the graphics, built the beautiful website, and posted all the pieces of the podcast. You know who you are, Chris Hagen, Belen Torres-Gill, and Emily Zentner. Special thanks to Valley Public Radio, the dozens of people I interviewed, my buddy Sergio Robles, who hung out with me in the park, and to Yosemite National Park. Our theme song is Arizona Moon by Blue Dot Sessions. Now that we're done, Yosemite Land is bingeable on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Tell your friends and family. See photos, maps, and more stories on our website, capradio.org slash yosemiteland. And I'm your host, Ezra David Romero, with Capital Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Yosemite Land.